0: This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today our scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. You can find it on page 984 in your Black Pew Bible. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him.
1: Good morning, everyone. Hey, my name is uh, Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're here. Welcome. Uh, This morning, if you you don't know, we've been in Colossians for a number of weeks and months already, and our time in Colossians has continued to kind of hammer home a theme of gratitude and thankfulness. And we're following a rhythm in our church in July where we take a break from our current series and we preach a couple sermons out of the Psalms. And so I want you to know that out of Colossians, that theme of thankfulness or gratitude, we're choosing Psalms of Thanksgiving in particular. So every Psalm that we'll hear in the next four weeks are all Psalms of Thanksgiving and praise. Um, yeah, we chose we chose that theme on purpose so that it would dovetail into our time in Colossians and then in August we'll jump back into Colossians. So after today we'll have four weeks in the Psalms and then in August we will jump back into the book of Colossians and you're also going to hear from some other people from the pulpit. So you'll hear from um, other men and leaders in our church who are also going to preach to help carry the load during a time when um, vacations happen and things like that in our church which would be really fun for us. So that's just a heads up and I wanted you all to be aware of that. And now, would you do me a favor and bow your heads with me and pray with me as we jump into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would send your spirit to, um, to convict us, to transform us, to make us see what we're supposed to see. To make your word alive in our hearts. I ask that you would help us increase in affection and dependence and trust and hope in Christ this morning. Spirit of God, would you magnify Christ in our midst this morning? Would you awaken our hearts to your word this morning, Heavenly Father? Would you strengthen our faith? Would you make us sturdy, grateful, thankful people? So, would you give us maybe fresh eyes to see what you've done, Jesus? Fresh eyes to see the the truth and the reality and the power of the gospel? Would you give us fresh understanding? And would you cut our hearts? Would you do surgery on us this morning? Cut out distractions or numbness or dullness of heart and wake us up afresh to your goodness and your glory and your kindness and your mercy and your grace, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, this, this text opens with a clear kind of injunction or a clear kind of instruction to us. It says, don't, don't let anybody... Don't let anybody take you captive by empty philosophy that's deceptive. Don't do that. Don't lack vigilance. Don't lack attention to what's really going on when you start to drift. Don't be taken captive. Stay alert so that you don't get captured. Stay awake. Maintain your sobriety about what traditions or ideas you might be flirting with that are pulling you away from the gospel. Paul has has specific behaviors and attitudes in mind when he gives us this instruction. He has a list of examples of what he means by being taken captive. And he's going to run through that list starting in verse 16. But before he gets into those details, the details of what not to do, first he kind of reinforces truth that will buttress and stabilize and strengthen you before he gives instructions about what that looks like on the ground. So if you remember from verse six a few weeks ago, we read, as you've received Christ, so walk in him. And Paul's gonna focus on how to walk in him later But right now he begins, before telling us what not to do, he begins with a kind of positive argument. He's here detailing the proactive, positive logic for why you shouldn't be tempted by vain, deceitful philosophy. He's stacking up reasons to help you be able to kind of shoo off these other things that tempt you. And his argument is essentially saying, instead of counterfeit spirituality, take the real thing. And the real thing comes only through Christ. It doesn't matter if it's the Dalai Lama or if it's Dr. Phil. It doesn't matter if it's Jordan Peterson or Jordan Peele. It doesn't matter if it's Bessel van der Kolk or if it's Brene Brown. True real substance comes only from Christ. If whatever you're studying or looking to for answers isn't according to Christ at its core, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's empty to save you, to change you, or to fill you. As Douglas Moo writes in his commentary on Colossians, he says the false teachers, the false teachers that are in Colossians right now, they seem rather to be arguing that certain practices must be added on in order to achieve true spiritual fulfillment. But for Paul, in this case, addition means subtraction. One cannot add to Christ without in effect subtracting from his exclusive place in creation and in salvation history. End quote. We're going to walk through four movements as we unpack this text. This text is a hopeful and positive kind of grounding for our strength and defense against false teaching. Paul's entire defense and strategic argument rests is grounded in what is historically known as the sufficiency of Christ. Your first and strongest defense to anything, any thought process or philosophy or framework that tries to tempt you to move away from the gospel is Christ's sufficiency any belief system, any philosophy, any ideology, both overt ones that attempt to persuade you explicitly to add things to Christ, that Christ isn't enough, or covert or subtle or sneaky things to get in and fundamentally try to pull your attention away from Christ. The apostle grounds his argument in the granite foundation of Christ's sufficiency. So, today from our text, we'll briefly sketch out four ways that Christ is sufficient, and anything that isn't according to Christ isn't sufficient to accomplish these realities for you. Those four are number one, in Christ, you're changed. In Christ, you're changed. Number two, in Christ, you're forgiven. Number three, in Christ you are new. And number four, in Christ your enemies are defeated. Number one, in Christ you're changed. You changed, starting in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting on the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Right away, we need to notice that Paul has shifted from that first instruction to an explanation. Don't let anybody abduct you by luring you away from Christ with empty things, empty ideas, with anything, things that are bankrupt and deceitful. Don't let anybody come to you and say, if you really want to experience fullness, you need more than Christ. Don't let that happen because there's zero fullness available to you in the world outside of Christ. All the fullness of deity is in Christ. So the first premise to Paul's reasoning is if you're looking for something to make you spiritual, if you're looking for something to make you wise, if if you're looking for something to give you peace with God or something that you think will get you closer to God and it isn't Christ, then you're looking in the wrong direction. You won't find it because all, all the fullness of deity dwells in him. That's where it is. He's the one that has it. Now, why is my first point that in Christ you're changed? And frankly, it's because our text talks so much about circumcision. Circumcision was a sign of being in in the covenant with God. It was a sign of being God's chosen people in the Old Testament. It was a sign established in Genesis 17. And it was a sign for all males in the covenant people of God to be circumcised as infants. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament make it clear that what God was always after with this sign was a cut heart and not only a cut body. To explain, let's read a few passages from the Old Testament. First, turn to Deuteronomy 10. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10 verse 15 through 16. I'm going to start reading verse 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. So here you see circumcision of the heart means that you're not stubborn. You're not disobedient. You're not obstinate. But instead you're willing and submissive and obedient. A little bit later in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verse 5, it says, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So here, a circumcised heart is so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Lastly, Jeremiah 4 4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah. The text today doesn't have to feel as weird or foreign as it first appears. We see in Colossians right here, in our text, it's speaking of this heart circumcision spoken of from ancient history in Israel. That now Christ has, has made a circumcision of our hearts, changed hearts possible, and he's done it in a way that's a better way than the old covenant rite of circumcision. Your flesh. The part of you that's spoken of in Colossians 1, 21, the, the part of you that was alienated from God, the old man, the, the person that was hostile in mind toward God, that you that was commi- committed and content doing evil deeds, that's the flesh that's been cut off by the circumcision of Christ. Romans 1, 29 through 32 describes our condition before Christ when it says... They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's a good description of what's been cut off. These are the works of the flesh that are described in Galatians chapter 5. When it says, now the works of the flesh are evident. The works of the flesh are manifest sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things won't inherit the kingdom of God. And 1 Corinthians 6 lets us know that such were some of us. Such were some of us. But now your hostility and strife and stubbornness of your heart, the rebelliousness of your heart, the resistance that you have to obeying God is cut off through the power of what Christ has done for you. That's the circumcision made without hands, which is shorthand for only God can do that for you. That's the circumcision made without hands and it's in direct opposition to things that you can do with your hands. Human beings can't do it. It's a direct confrontation to any trust that we would put in human traditions or human ideas or human ingenuity. Only God can change you and bring your heart in relationship with his heart. Again, the prophet Jeremiah I'll give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I'll give them a heart of flesh. That's a soft heart that can love God. That's not something that you can do for yourself or that you can do for anybody else. It takes circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ. In Christ, you're changed. You had a heart of stone and he cut it out of you. He cut it out. And now you don't. You have a heart of flesh instead. And only God did that in his great mercy and his great kindness. That's why everything else is trash. Every other thing in your life that competes for your loyalty or competes For your heart's allegiance is trash compared to the sufficiency of Christ. Number two, in Christ, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. This imagery is one of like seven different illustrations in, in seven verses that, that would have been crystal clear to these people while it's a little bit hard, harder for us to kind of connect with, these people would have seen it in 8K high definition, okay? And we've touched on it already, but we had a record. You and I, we had a rap sheet, a long one, as long as our, our arm. And, and that means both individually, you had a rap sheet, and mankind had a record of wrongs. God's decrees come to us. And we fail, and we not only fail, but we scoff at them and we scorn at them, and we are legally guilty before a holy God. This is the guilty record that I referenced earlier from Romans 1. That's the kind of thing that stood against us. Some commentators illustrate this text in a form of some kind of IOU which is present in the first century, but also is a little thin or a little bit too light for the sex. We didn't borrow a little bit of money from God and forget to pay him back. We stole and we vandalized and we squandered and we defaced and we ravaged. And we could never get out of that debt. And he took that record and he blotted it out. All of it through Christ. We're, we're forgiven, and we're forgiven all the way to the bottom. That's the kind of reality that we have in this text. We aren't on the hook for any of it anymore because He paid our debt. The imagery is startling. The record of debt, your IOU, if you will, to God that you could never pay, Christ set it aside and he nailed it to the cross. And this isn't just setting it to the side, like the way I said, a bottle of water on the side of this podium so it doesn't distract you. This is away, away, okay? It's like John one twenty nine, same word where he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world all the way away, completely away. And we don't, we don't receive that easily because we tend to want to forgive like 97% of things. We tend to easily hold on to 3% so that we can kind of hold it over someone's head when it's convenient so. But God's not like us. God doesn't do that to you. Christ canceled all of your debt and he set it aside. He removed it. He took it away. He took it all the way away. Who else in your life can do that for you? What else in your life can do that for you? And the answer is nothing. Christ is sufficient for our forgiveness. Nothing else can get that for you. Your sin, your guilt, your trespass, your trespass couldn't be just swept under the rug. It demands punishment. In places like Romans chapter three, talk about how God is both just, and he's the justifier of people like you and me, Wicked people, sinners like you and me. You and I have a record that demands payment, and Christ. Christ paid it for us by paying the penalty of our real record, our actual sins. And Paul's telling us this again and again and again to wave smelling salts under our nose and wake us up so that we have our eyes focused on it and it sinks down into who we are and we're not distracted by these other things that buy for our attention, that yank at our attention and try to get us to trust other things or hope in other things or add other things to who Jesus is is already for you. And he's making a compelling comparison. Why do we look elsewhere? Why? Why are you looking over there at weed or alcohol for what it will never be able to give you? Why would you look to your money to satisfy you? Why do we twist the scriptures to help them justify our own sin? Why are you looking to success or rules, or regulations, or self-righteous attitudes. What are you doing? What are you doing? In Christ, you have everything you need, both now and forever. That stuff won't make you spiritual. It won't make you closer to God. It makes promises to you that it can't keep. It's deceptive. It didn't forgive your sins. Don't be duped by it. Don't be taken captive by things that at their core aren't according to Christ. Number three, in Christ, you're new. You're new. This is the flip side of point number one. The circumcision of our heart was made without hands, and it was done by God himself. And we demonstrate that through baptism. Verses 11 and 12 say, say In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh, by the circum- cir- circumcision of Christ, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Listen to how this scholar summarizes these verses for us. Quote, Accordingly, Paul views the external rite of circumcision, where a piece of flesh is stripped off, to be a typological pointer to the greater redemptive reality of the entire body of Christ and his followers being circumcised or cut off from the old sinful world and set apart to a new one. To a new one. You see, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead by his own powerful working and we're raised by the same power of God through faith. There's a a future. There is a future kind of final bodily resurrection for believers. But now, right now, that same resurrection power is at work in you to make you new. You're new and you're becoming new. Your struggle against sin, your struggle to crucify the flesh inside you, your struggle to put on more of the new man is the struggle of a guaranteed reality. It's an already and a not yet tension. It's it it, it isn't complete, but it is guaranteed. It isn't finished, but it is good as done. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But guys, Christ has been raised. Your faith isn't futile and you are not dead in your sins. We were buried with him in baptism and were raised to walk in newness of life. That's what our baptism liturgy says and it comes straight from Romans chapter 6. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. God didn't only take out that dead, hard heart of stone and forgive everything you had done. He also put in you a new heart that can delight in loving Him and delight in obeying Him. If you're in this room this morning and you're tender to the things of God, that's your new heart. If you're in this room this morning and you're convicted by your sin, if you're convicted like I was yesterday when you're harsh with your daughters, that's your new heart. If, you're, if you love God and treasure Christ this morning, it isn't because you're smarter or funnier or a better person than the guy sitting next to you. It's all because of God's mercy and grace so no one could boast he gave you that heart. Deuteronomy 9 verse 4 says, don't say in your heart that it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess this land, whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is delivering them or is driving them out before us. Don't say that. You didn't do anything to become new. It wasn't your good behavior that made God save you. It was God's sovereign mercy and electing purpose. It wasn't your baptism that made you new. It wasn't your baptism that earned forgiveness for sins. It wasn't your baptism that gave you a new heart. It was by grace, through faith, in the powerful working of God. God's work. God's made without hands kind of work. Through faith, by grace alone. Who else can do that for you? What other ideologies that you're putting your trust in are by grace alone through faith alone? Number four, in Christ, your enemies are defeated. They're defeated. In seven verses, seven times, we see either in him or with him. The thrust of what Paul's getting at is the weighty doctrine of your union with Christ. You've been filled in him, being in him, being forgiven, dying with him, being raised with him. Union with Christ is the force and the weight of this text. And friends, in Christ, union with him, your enemies are defeated. They're defeated. They're doomed Verse 15 says he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In dramatic irony, Christ climbed onto a cross, the most disgusting and shameful way to die in the ancient world, and that shame was transformed into glory. 1 Corinthians 15 explains that what's sown in dishonor and weakness and the natural world will be raised to honor and power and the spiritual. God used what looked like the most vicious and humiliating defeat to be the very place that he accomplishes complete and utter victory. And 1 Corinthians tells us that nobody even knew what he was doing. No one understood it. 1 Corinthians 2.8 says, None of the rulers of this age understood what he was doing, understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In, in, in Roman times, you had a king return from victory. And he would kind of parade through the city. He'd ride into town with all his prisoners And they would be lined up behind him in this humiliating and shameful kind of train of defeat. Just a line of conquered people. And that's exactly the imagery that the the apostle is evoking for his listeners. Christ cut down. He defeated and made a spectacle of all the rulers and all the authorities and all the spiritual powers they marched behind him with their heads hung in shame. They lost. They lost. And they're, they're in the, a train in his triumphal procession. Your, your enemy, friends, your enemy guilt, your enemy sin, and your enemy death is defeated. All those enemies have been defeated. And so my question again this morning is... What else would we turn to? Who else can you turn to? Can Instagram do that for you? Can different wellness strategies from Alexa do that for you? Can a new car or a new house or a new experience or a new spouse be that for you? Can giving into your lusts and desires defeat your enemies? Can empty religion or false doctrine that tickles your ears, can that defeat your enemies? No. No. Can can being true to yourself do that for you? Can the traditions of men or philosophies or self-help gurus do that for you? Can your social media platform do that for you? And the answer is no. 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 Only Christ is sufficient to defeat your enemies. Friends, anything that makes the gospel, anything that makes the gospel look boring to you, anything that makes Christ look impotent to you or makes him look powerless or common or uninteresting or not enough is empty and deceptive. Paul's not condemning philosophy per se or condemning the discipline of philosophy. I know guys who have philosophy degrees. He's condemning something more subtle. In fact, there's places in ancient texts where even the Jewish traditions are called a certain kind of philosophy. It's a way of organizing uh, thought or information. And our biggest, our biggest temptation isn't being captive by belief systems that are obviously hostile to Christianity or hostile to the gospel. Our biggest temptation or danger is to mix the gospel with other belief systems that distract us or they compete with the allegiance of Christ and creep in and kind of uh, steal trust and hope out of our hearts. This text tells us that what looks like the darkest day for Christ became the death blow to all darkness everywhere forever. Christ endured the pains of death in order to defeat death itself. He allowed evil forces to strip him bare and naked in order order for him to strip all those powers of any power that they had over you, over us. He allowed himself to be utterly crushed so that he could finally crush the head of the serpent like God promised in Genesis chapter three. The death blow has been dealt and the future victory has been secured. What would it look like if we believed that maybe a little bit more? Maybe we believe that a little bit deeper. How would your life be different if you knew that every enemy in your life has been utterly vanquished? How would you live? How would you live differently? Maybe you'd be able to say with Paul, what's man? What can he do to me? Christ is the preeminent one. He's the ruler of every power and authority in the universe. All all the traditions of men exist through him and for him. And everything in the unseen realm exists through him and for him. Everything sits down here underneath him and he sits above it all and we are united with Christ so why would we be one or distracted or pulled away by things that are down here we have him we're united in him what else could we give our allegiance or loyalty to That reality might even be enough to make our hearts overflow with thanksgiving, like we read in the previous text. That's how gratitude works in the Christian life. When you you find something, when you find a treasure in a field, you buy the field right? When you find the pearl of great price, you sell all your stuff to get the pearl. Gratitude that comes from receiving this sufficient Christ is your defense against all other lesser things, all other lesser receiving. Your thankfulness based on clear understanding of what Christ has done makes you less vulnerable to other alternatives, makes you less susceptible to other alternatives. And there are alternatives that pale in comparison to what Christ has done for you. Everything becomes junk compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The sufficiency of Christ is what is what extinguishes the flame of the power of false teaching. The sufficiency of Christ is what extinguishes the flame of the power of false teaching that draws you away. As I move to close this morning, I'm going to read from a section in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, because it directly parallels with the same language what we see in our text today. Formerly, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature aren't God's. But now, now that you have come to know God, or rather you've come to be known by God, how can you turn back? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? Christ isn't one option among many choices for salvation and freedom, Christ is the only option. Christ is sufficient for everything that you need. Christ, in Christ, you're changed. In Christ, you're forgiven. In Christ, you're new. You're new. And in Christ, your enemies have been defeated. He took your accuser's ledger the things that you were truly, really guilty of before God in the court of heaven, and he nailed it to the cross by climbing onto a cross with with a word nailed over his head that said, King of the Jews. Christ is sufficient. Why would you be distracted or pulled away to anything else? Everyone, Come and welcome this morning to Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn this morning, uh, as we end, to focus on communion. We take communion every single Sunday, and we do it because we need to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, and we need to do it every single Sunday. We proclaim it to each other as as we say our liturgy to each other and we also proclaim it to the watching world. I'm gonna read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The way we take communion at Redeemer Fellowship is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups have wine in them and the glassware is juice. We'll have two stations down here in front of me, one in the balcony and one further over here to my left that is gluten-free and single-serve. And then we'll also have prayer ministers underneath the stained glass window to my left. They'd love to pray for anybody about anything, anytime. They're up here every single Sunday. If you ever need prayer, they'd love to pray for you. I'm gonna pray for us now as the servers come forward and as the musicians come forward. Would you bow your heads with me as I pray? God, I asked this morning that we would eat in faith, that we would participate, that we would participate in your life, death and resurrection this morning in faith, in a way that sinks down deeper into our understanding, that sinks down deeper into our hearts and souls, that sinks down deeper in such a way that orients us, that directs us, that convicts us, that helps us to confess sin. Helps us confess of things maybe that just distract us or pull us away. Things that consume our mind and hearts and affections, worry, doubt, afflictions in our lives. Would you open our eyes? Would you open our eyes to see Christ Holy Spirit, would you magnify Christ in our hearts and souls this morning that does displace other things in our hearts, that pushes them out. Take up more ground. Take more control of our lives, Jesus. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask this morning in Jesus' name, amen.